program, and we hope you have on a regular basis, you know that we've been concerned about some of the issues regarding uh, how cattle are fed, contamination, E. coli, etc. And to talk more about that, we have an expert. Joining us is John Wood, the founder of U.S. Wellness Meats, and an expert on this topic. Welcome to Radio Parallax, John Wood. Doug, honored to be a part of your program today. Well, uh, let, let's kind of talk about this whole uh, issue in the country of, of how cattle are currently being raised and how there's a better way. Basically, I came out of the cattle feeding industry. My background is conventional agriculture. attended Iowa State University, graduated in 1975, and got involved in a family business, uh, which was quite successful. And more or less got into the into the general you know conventional mode of business for about 20 years until I kind of started you know I'm, I'm I'm a free thinker and and I stumbled into some information in the mid 1990s on grass-fed beef and some of the unique health properties associated with it and what was driving the issue was back in the 70s we were told the charcoal broiling you know could possibly cause cancer that was kind of a concern of those are your listening audience that were alive and well in the 1970s and uh, there was research down at the University of Wisconsin in the mid-80s by Dr. Mike Pariza, and he determined that something in that ground beef was impeding the growth of those tumors, which was a real stunner. And two years later, they discovered this very unique double-bonded carbon molecule called CLA, or conjugated linoleic acid. And it has a very unique property that it is actually very anti-cancer. And um, it's so unique that the three major... Pharmaceutical companies, uh, JD, J.D. Cyril, Merck, and Pfizer have tried for the last 20-some-odd years to mimic it in the lab, and they cannot keep it stable. And so the best sources of that is grass-fed beef and bison and, and lamb and, and butter and dairy products. And so with that knowledge, I began experimenting in the mid-1990s, and I was just convinced the meat wouldn't be tender it would, you know, it would be only fit for ground beef, and much to my utter surprise, in 1997, we sampled the first animal. We kind of picked out the best one in the pasture, and we, we understood grazing management quite well. We moved the animals to new grass almost every day, and so it's what I call ice cream and cookies at 4 o'clock. And this animal was very tender, uh, outstanding flavor, and we compared it to a piece of prime Hereford beef. Three of us, we only drank one beer. We were completely sober. And we all three were dumbfounded because it went contrary to all of our personal beliefs. And we agreed that it would never happen again. We were from the state of Missouri and the show-me state, so you're going to have to show me twice. And so we we just wrote it off as just dumb luck. Well, 1998, we had the same experience. Uh, the meat was very tender, very flavorful. And we said, man, this just can't be. I mean, it just can't be two years in a row. In 1999, we harvested three or four animals, three or four families involved. And we had the same eating experience, which after three years, we were kind of convinced maybe there is something to this. And then, uh, much to our um, surprise, we sent it off to the laboratory. Iowa State University has a really good biochem lab, and University of Illinois was a neighbor to the east. Commercial labs couldn't even test for CLA, and it came back very, very high. So that's when I literally uh, had took a leap of faith and uh, told my poor wife that we were going to start off on a pioneering mission to bring grass-fed beef to the American population, and she thought I was nuts. My kids thought I was nuts, and uh, nine or ten years later, we're still at it, and uh, and I think maybe we've educated four to five percent of the American population, so I'm quite grateful for your program to to help carry this message because so many people just don't understand what that real difference is. It's all driven off of the pH of the first stomach, and uh, 
I'll take a break and let you ask me a question or two. <laughs> well, John, I do want to add, I don't know if it was clear when we talked, uh, this goes out over UC Davis. Uh, our, our, this is where the station is located, which has always been America's one of foremost uh, uh, agricultural schools. I know they do a lot of research in this area, but I, I'm encouraged by the fact that you're saying that this, this, this grass-fed beef is tender. I was in Argentina a couple years back, and I thought their grass-fed beef was pretty good, but I thought it was a little chewy. One of the things that we've done, uh, either by dumb luck or design, the first company that we stumbled into to do the processing was a company called PM Beef, and they were in Minnesota, and they took an interest in our endeavor. And they were the first company in America to do wet aging. And if you go to Ucrop grocery stores up and down the East Coast, that's one of their primary outlets. And we harvest these animals on Monday, for example. On Wednesday, we break the carcass into 15 or 16 subprimal muscles. We've got inside rounds, outside rounds, ribeyes, strip loins, tenderloins, chuck rolls, terrace majors, flanks, skirts, briskets, you know, the major primary submuscles. They go into a vacuum bag. They sit there at 33 degrees, completely undisturbed in a chilled room for a minimum of 30 days. And then I finally give the instructions to the meat cutter, and he's usually behind his work 10 days or so. And so normally you've got 45 days of age on a ribeye or a strip loin before it's ever cut in the steaks. And, and I, John, I, John I have to ask, what's typical? Because I, I don't know anything about this. Here, here's, here's what's typical. The conventional meat industry today... The animal's harvested on Monday. The only aging that it gets, it goes into a, it goes into, it's called box beef. It goes into a cardboard box, gets onto a refrigerated truck and those same muscles we just talked about, and it ends up in a grocery store or a restaurant anywhere in the United States, and by Friday or Saturday, it's on someone's plate. That's the normal method of operation today. Uh, and, and you just cannot get a really premium piece of meat unless you age it. Now, the really good steakhouses like Ruth Christ and places like that, they will actually take those subprimal muscles, put them in their own aging room, and they will dry age those steaks or those primal muscles for maybe 10 days, two weeks or so. But the general meat you see at the grocery store today in America is probably no more than 10 days after, har- 10 days after harvest. See, I'd, I'd always, as I always thought that, that, that you did age beef, but I'm getting a real education here. But most people, most people don't. If you go to the country locker, if you know a farmer and you're going to go to a local country locker somewhere around your, around your community, you can tell the, the, tell the butcher to hang the carcass for 10 days, and he'll, he'll do that. Normally 10 days, maybe two weeks is the most that they'll do it. But we're, but we're aging this meat 40 to 45 days in, in most cases. And so that really makes a difference. What percentage would you say of, of the meat that is in this country now is, is grass-fed? I know there's, a lot of people are clamoring for it, but uh, how much of it is, is conventionally oh, fed? It's a bee, that's a kind of a moving target. There's about 1,200 to 1,300 small mom and pops doing this. There's about three or four or five of us you know, that are taking this thing on in a nationwide scale. I, well, I know one where I know it's under 5%, maybe 2, 2.5%, 3%. Once it gets up to be 5% of market share, then you're going to see some activity from the Tyson Foods and people like that. In fact, the grass-fed USDA standards now include the use of hormones and antibiotics. No, by the way, 80% of the life can be on grass and 20% something else. So the mainline industry is going to come at the grass-fed industry with a grass-fed label that will be very, very, you have to be very astute to pay attention to what's going on. And that's, that was set up in advance. And I was told by several people in the industry, once the grass-fed movement hits 5% market share, 
then look out. You'll see a lot of competition show up at the marketplace. So our marketing model has been direct to the consumer's door. We've, we've attempted to uh, uh, work with a special good arrangement with FedEx, and we can deliver to anybody's doorstep in the country. 85% of our business is to the homeowner. 15% of it is to retail distributors or wholesalers or restaurants or small independent grocery stores. So we want to have our nucleus or our core being the uh, individual families around the country that understand this. And that's, that's where we've, you know, that's where we've really put our, put our energy level. Let's talk a little bit about E. coli. That's been in the news uh, of late. Uh, you mentioned, I think, that uh, this has something to do with how the animals are fed, increases the, the probability of getting it, and I guess how the, how the meat is, is basically, in essence, quote, cleaned, unquote, so that they can recycle a lot of stuff is entering into this problem. That's a very, very simple question and answer. E. coli-157 thrives in an acidic environment. If you take a, if you take a thousand pound steer and you you feed that animal grain, you're going to put about 22 to 23 pounds of corn in that animal on a daily basis, which is a very high load of starch. The first stomach in the bovine is called the rumen, R-U-M-E-N. There are four stomachs, rumen, abomasin, reticulum, and small intestine. But the first stomach is the fermentation vat, just like you'd make wine, cheese, beer, think of any fermented food. And the fermentation vat is populated not with millions, but billions of bacteria. And these bacteria are all pH sensitive. So guess what? The pH at four and a half, which is the starch or the grain diet, E. coli 157 thrives in that environment. You hardly get any CLA production. Those, you know, the, the bacteria there did not produce CLA. They produce minimal amounts of omega-3, and they produce lots of omega-6. Well, guess what? Flip it over. Take this same animal off of a pasture, a 1,000-pound pasture-raised animal, uh, guess what the pH is in the first stomach there? Take a stab at that, Doug. Any oh. ideas? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't, couldn't even guess. pH 7, which is neutral, which is kind of what God intended for that animal to operate at. And so pH 7 is an entirely different uh, strain of bacteria. All the pH 4.5 acidic bacteria, they all die off, and you repopulate with this neutral bacteria. And guess what? They produce copious amounts of CLA. They produce... 20 times as much omega-3, uh, not near as much omega-6, and they produce more vitamin E and A, they produce more branched-chain amino acids, and all of a sudden grass-fed beef is health food, and it's all driven off that first stomach. And, oh, by the way, E. coli-157 will not survive in that pH 7 chamber. It, it, just, it just will not take that environment. So, so you ask yourself, well, where did E. coli-157 show up? About 1981 or two in the jack-in-the-box. That was 1981 or 1982. Well, the grain-fed industry didn't come into power in this country until the 1960s. Really got going really full guns in the 70s. But after World War II, we had an abundance of nitrogen for making bombs. The agricultural universities and one of your universities there, University of California Davis, probably helped in this. They determined that nitrogen will make corn grow. They doubled the national corn yield in about three or four years. Huge increase in corn production because of this excess nitrogen. Then they had a problem. Corn got real cheap. Farmers were losing money, so they decided, well, we'll feed it to animals. We'll feed it. And, of course, hogs had always, had always eaten the corn. A pig doesn't require much corn. I mean, it's a much smaller animal. So the cattle were the natural place to get rid of this surplus of corn. Well, that's what started this whole thing. And by the 1960s, uh, in the 50s and 60s, they fed whole ground ear corn, which you had a lot of fiber in there that the, the environment wasn't near as acidic in the animal. And by the 1970s, they realized that if you put more starch in there, the animal will grow faster. It's a more dangerous ration. 
And then, oh, by the way, you have to add antibiotics every day. We didn't do that because we wanted to spend the money. We added Thailand 200 because it was a, a way to protect the liver because the liver cannot take the acidic environment. So from the 1970s on, you had this very acidic environment, and lo and behold, after 10 years, here comes the strain of bacteria that's probably, you know, develop perfect atmosphere for it and here it comes there's lots of e coli's in the animal <clears throat> and e coli 157 happens to be the one that's really deadly and and so 1981 is when we first saw it 10 or 12 years down the road from this grain industry so you know i'm a pretty much of a pretty conservative common sense sort of a person i recognize that we will never feed the entire country or world on grass-fed beef we got to have some commercial agriculture in order to produce a massive volume to feed the world's population and I really think, you know, I think 25% to maybe 50% of the population that takes enough interest in their health and will study their lesson, you know, I think maybe if I live long enough, we'll see more and more people pick up this habit. But we have athletes that come to us, uh, strength athletes. Uh, Dina Castor uh, lives at Mammoth Lake. She's a, you're, you know, the marathon record holder in the United States, loves the product and buys it from us. And she you know, comments, and after she broke her foot at the, I think she was really intentionally injured at the Olympics last summer, and we gave her bone marrow broth and, and gave her several things out of our out of our store, so to speak, you know, to help her heal, and she healed up very, very rapidly. But the omega-3s in the grass-fed beef, it's, it, it, the ratio is 2 to 1 to 3 to 1. Conventional beef is 20 to 1, which is dramatically different and, and even better than fish and chicken. And so these the weightlifting athletes will tell us after 30 days, my elbows are better, my knees are better, my arthritis is better. And it's the omega-3s where they get that first sense of something different. And then after a year and a half, you know, they're, they're carrying 5 or 10 pounds more lean muscle. So... And we have women's figure fitness competitors that buy grass-fed beef and buy hamburger of all things. They're after the CLA and the fat, and uh, they're using that as part of their diet. So it's a neat story. Very few people know about it, and uh, people like yourself, I thank you very much for taking time to listen to me today. Well, I appreciate that, John. I, I just a uh, final question. If we go to grass-fed beef, can we eliminate some of this problem of the, uh, the manure, which is currently being so concentrated and infiltrating its way into streams and like? Exactly. And what we do, if your listeners can picture wherever they're standing, and whether they're a car driving down the highway today or in their homes, if they could just picture the space that they're in right now, I'm in an office here, 10 by 15 feet, and you break the floor up into 30 different sections. And just think of that as pasture. And on day one, the animals are in section one, and it's enough room for them. There's enough, there's enough groceries in there for 24 hours of very good eating. After day one, they move to day two, day three, day four, and the manure deposition is being uniformly distributed over the landscape. It's not being concentrated. And as they go around the circle 30 days later, to, you know, sometimes in some cases 40 days later, when they show back up to paddock number one, you've got six, eight inches of perfectly green grass. And the, the plant community thrives because the pastures I have on my farm are probably only grazed six days a year are there animals standing on that pasture. And so, you know, this manure is spread out uniformly. Uh, we have more soil microorganisms. We have more plants in the plant community due to the rest. The roots go twice as deep. I don't have any runoff. I've got several lakes on my farm. I've never seen the lakes overflow like I saw back when I was doing conventional agriculture. They just never, they just never flood because the soil is able to absorb the water much more rapidly. The water cycle is better. Uh, it's catching more sunlight. You know, the whole thing works so much better. In fact, this business of managed grazing, uh, the, the, those of us that understand it and do it every day, we're just shocked because we've got twice as much forage out there as we had when we started this thing, sometimes three to four times as much forage. 
And this manure deposition, when you have the dung beetles and all the little insects in the soil, those cow pies disappear within two or three days. It's the darndest thing you've ever seen once you get it working right. So we don't, we, we, we have no manure to spread. We have no concentrated manure on the property. And so it's, it's a win-win for the soil, the animals, the farm families, the rural community, and citizens around the country. Well, John, it does sound like you've got it working right, and we, we wish you all the, all the best of, of luck in the world. As, as we close, I know you have a website. People are going to want to know more. Where can they go to find, uh, find that out? It's very simple. They go to uswellnessmeats.com, uswellnessmeats, as in plural, .com, and you can call us at 877-383-0051. Again, 877-383-0051, and go to uswellnessmeats.com. Well, and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to want to do exactly that. John Wood, thank you so much for speaking with us. Doug, thank you very much. It's been a real honor and privilege. All righty. Bye-bye. Green Acres is the place to be. Hard living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside.